Hi, and welcome to Drafting Compliance. I'm Kane, he's Tom, and in our last episode, we talked about a gap analysis. This episode, we're going to be talking about the access control, uh, the access control policy, as well as the access control um, family of controls associated with FedRAMP moderate. But as always, we're, we're going to be talking about beer. Tom, I picked this one because I like the color green. <laughs> yeah, you picked the green can as you described it. And I will tell everybody that this is, uh, the name of it is Hopulent. It's by Epic Brewery. Epic Brewery is in Salt Lake City, Utah. So a good West Coast or Western State beer. Usually when you I'm see the word. Say, I'm, in, I'm in like Washington State. Utah is not West Coast. Well, I'm in, I'm in <laughs> Iowa. It's considerably further West than I am. <laughs> you know, anytime you see a name like Hopulent, you should be hearkening to the idea that this is going to be an extremely hop forward beer. And specifically, Hopulent is going to be a West Coast style India Pale Ale IPA. So West Coast versus, say, New England style IPA, very different. This is going to be extremely hoppy. It's going to coat the tongue. It's going to ask you to come get another drink to try to get rid of it. As, as contrasted with New England IPA, which usually is paired with something that is like citrus or something like caramely that balances it really, really well, this one will be for the hop lovers out there. So I say we crack this beer and see what it looks like. Fair enough. I'll say while we while we open this that we have a lot of uh, breweries where I'm at in Bellingham, Washington, where um, IPA is their primary uh, beer, craft beer that they what do they do? They brew it. Yeah, they brew it. They distill, but they brew it, and um, it's kind of the known thing here. We actually shut. Oh, I screwed this one up. It's great. We uh, shut down a grocery store actually, so we could have a brewery. In its place. Well, that um, makes total sense. Wow, to that's got a. Uh, it's got a good head on it. Got, it's got a, quite a lot of um, much foam. Much yeah. wow. That's okay. I like the color. It's kind of yeah. Fun it's it's actually gritty. It's it's, it's it is orangey. Yep. It looks like yeah. it could it could have a, a fairly significant amount of sediment in it, so it's pretty hazy, which I'm happy to see because again, when I read the word that. hopulent, I don't think of hazy, so that's really exciting oh. to me. What are you smelling there? Um, <laughs> foam apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I smell, I smell uh, some fruit. I would say mango if it, if it, if I were to put a name to it, which Beer? again surprises me because I wouldn't expect there to to be fruity notes in in a West Coast IPA. Um. Beer and something mildly sour smelling. A little sour, yep. Kind of like, um, kind of like a left out laundry hamper in the sun. <laughs> like if you were to, if you were to go into my teenager's room, I'm sure you know his laundry hamper may have notes that mirror this. I think it smells absolutely okay. delicious. So what I'm going to do is is take a drink, a nice long pull. All right, well let's have a go at this then. I've got a lot of foam on this though. Oh well, I'll treat it like a latte. Mm. Yeah, that's oh, that's foam. Okay, is there beer in this? Well, my first uh, oh. my oh. first uh, impression is it's it's less hoppy than I feared it would be. So that's a good thing for you, and I think it's pretty delicious. So it does actually balance out with a little fruit note to it. It's uh, it's definitely a, a, t a coder of the tongue, so you do want to take uh -huh. another. Yeah, it's got a lot of it's got a lot of body to it. Um, that that's for sure. Uh, a lot of sediment, um, thick, 
comes to mind as a, as a phrase uh, or as a word. And I think the word you're looking for is delicious, probably. Uh, it's probably violet. A good friend of mine <laughs> and I go on wine tastings and she points out I never can taste violet because I can't like get a flavor out of this other than oppressively thick tasting beer. Yeah, I get a little vanilla um, underneath I'll it all, kind of on the back. I think this is actually really good. I'm I am pleasantly surprised by this beer. It's definitely got the bitters of hop, right? But uh, it balances way better than I would have anticipated. This is yeah, something I'll, I would I'll, I'll seek out. I'll give it out. this. It, this is not as terrible as what we did last episode. That sour, that was just freaky awful. This is <laughs> not as awful. Yeah. Well, um, I'm glad we're finding something less awful for you. So we'll let this simmer. Uh, we'll sip on it as we talk, and then we'll rate it at the end. Uh, be curious to see how you uh, have come around on your rating schedule. So, Okay. Well, so far, my highest has been a two, though I have previously <laughs> asked if we could rejigger the numbers. Um, but we're also going to be talking about access controls, and just numerically, that is the number one control family in FedRAMP, right, Tom? That's correct. I mean, it's number one in terms of alphabetical order. It's number one in terms of the number of major requirements in it, which there's 22 major requirements in, uh, in the access control family, but nested underneath those major requirements are a number of other requirements. So in total, it's 44 uh, requirements. That's a huge lift. So if you are looking at starting from a greenfield, mm -hmm. this will represent one of the larger projects for your operational team to, to tackle. So this is going to ask your operational team to look at a number of pieces of their environment. Certainly everything inside of your authorization boundary, which we talked about a couple episodes talked ago. Talked about that a couple episodes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Everything inside of that boundary is going to fall underneath this control set. So you're going to have to look at things like, hey, how do you determine what users have access to what? Is that documented? Do you have a process around those users to determine when they get privilege, when they get privilege removed? What are the attributes that they have to display in order to get that privilege? There's just a number of, of sort of best practices around access control in general, but things that normal enterprises without a certain uh, compliance burden wouldn't have documented, right? So these, this is all about documentation. In some cases, right. it's about completely changing your processes. I'll give you an example. So if you have a new user starting, right, you have to determine how that person now gets to the point where they are authorized to access certain assets inside of the, the authorization boundary. This bleeds over into things like your training policy, because that might be one of the attributes you have to go through in order to get there. But you certainly People have to have be to trained have, in order to get access. Correct. Yeah. I mean, training, we're going to talk about it, that in a future episode, but it's essentially... You, I just want to disambiguate as well here for, for, for viewers. Are we talking about logical access or are we talking about physical access or are we talking about both it's both yep absolutely both. so both. logical as well as physical access so even though we are a cloud first organization selling a cloud service physical access is going to be part of the access control family it's it, it's part of this and then there is another control family that it's enumerated more in essentially what you have to understand is your access control is extensible to however you access information assets. So, you know, you, you still have to have the same authorization processes in place. What what I think is really interesting about this is there are a number of categories or requirements that are 
perhaps a little left of field if you're a SaaS company. They're not they're they're open to interpretation and you have to be very thoughtful about how you think about them in terms of your environment. I'll give you Yeah, I was looking at this before the episode before recording and um, uh, wireless access controls in there. Uh, wireless access control seems a bit, like you say, left of field, a bit out there, given if you are a SaaS service, a SaaS service provider consuming another SaaS service, how does wireless figure in? Is this like an architectural relic of the control family? Well, I think, I think certainly why it's included is a relic of times gone by. But we also have to remember that FedRAMP is for SaaS companies, so... You know, you have to think there is some intent behind it, if even that intent might not have been well documented. So what it does is it opens you up to some interpretation. And I'll tell you how I interpret it. And we'll find out as we go through this process whether my interpretation is accurate or not. But there are, I, let me just take a step back. There are really three areas of this control family that I think are a little odd. There's wireless access controls. There's mobile mm-hmm. device access controls. And there's remote mm-hmm. access controls. Again, as a SaaS product, you would say, well, all of those things don't seem to apply to this <laughs> to this, this use case, right? I mean, anywhere there is an internet connection, you should ostensibly be able to have access to our application. So how I think I, this has something to do with system boundary, right, Tom? Is that where you're going around the authorization boundary and the definition of the system? I think it does. That's how I interpret it. So essentially, inside the boundary, that's where you shouldn't have additional wireless access or additional mobile access or additional remote access without these extensive controls in place. So for instance, our application, you can't directly connect to it with Bluetooth. That would be an example of a wireless technology that we would have to have controls around it if you were within the boundary and you were accessing it. Similarly, we wouldn't have mobile device management inside of our boundary occurring directly to the application. Outside of our boundary, we can access it and go through our typical authentication boundary that gets us Mm -hmm. inside the authorization boundary. And that's fine, right? That's how we interpret these controls. So it takes. So does that presuppose, like, if you've got a laptop, uh, let's, you've got your corporate corporate laptop, you're don't have mobile device management on it because it's not inside of the authorization boundary. So I'm guessing architecturally that laptop is going to have to connect to a bastion host or to a jump host or similarly named gateway process where all of that authorization boundary starts. Is that correct? It all, it all hinges on who is behind that laptop. So if you're a typical user defined as a user in the system, no, you wouldn't have to jump through a bastion host. If you are an administrator of the system, you are going to jump through an additional set of controls, which would include a bastion host. So you aren't getting directly accessed to the administrative um, face of that application. So yeah, you, you really have to determine your, your different users and the types of access those users have, and then think Mm -hmm. about how you apply different controls to different users. That's really what this entire family is all about. And, oh, it just so happens to throw in some of these really odd control requirements around wireless and remote access and things like that. But you're going to touch on things like your session timeout, your session lock on your application, or if it's not just your application, it's other uh, systems inside the boundary. You're going to you're going to have to configure a use of system notification. So one of those banners that pops up when you access an application that says, hey, be aware you're accessing company X's 
application. Oh, yeah, like the old Windows NT login screen or the old uh, SunOS, sorry, Unix login screens. Yep, yep, I, I remember Sun. Uh, that's correct. And in this case, we have to warn that the system may have access to government data. So you have additional You know what, we also have a, a special a special guest here. Um, we talked about whether or not he'd make an appearance on the show. Uh, my little kitten. Oh, I don't um, know if I would call that a little kitten. Uh, this is uh, Modi. He is a, uh, he's previously been in other hyperproof things. I think he was in our commercial. And uh, yeah, Modi is a Norwegian forest cat. He is a year and a half old. So, or no, you know, a Norwegian forest cat. A Norwegian forest cat. Do they just, do they, uh, yeah. Do they shorten that into just like Puma or something? <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a large kitty. Here you go, Modi. You want to try the beer? No, he's like, nope. <laughs> okay, you want to get down? All right. He's still not big on technology. But he yeah. doesn't mind being on camera. Oh, I've been attacked by cat hair. That's okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. They shorten it to NFC, uh, which is an in, uh, you know way better than an NFT. Yeah, right. That's right. There's no resale value. You, you were talking about cats, and I was thinking about paper tigers also. So you've defined a lot of controls. You've defined a lot of potential policies and some procedures, I'm guessing, as well. How are we making sure we're not actually, like, this is enforceable, and it doesn't just look good on paper, but in fact has no teeth? Yeah. Well, for anybody who's been in compliance for any amount of time, they understand the idea of evidence and you know, or proof, depending on, on, on how you label it. But that's essentially what we're doing, right? Every time we implement a control, we want to go and collect some sort of proof. That's where hyperproof is really nice, by the way, because hyperproof helps you generate that proof, automate that proof, and allow it to happen in a way that you don't have to sit there and babysit it all the time. But certainly and we want- And test the effectiveness, effectiveness of it as well. Yeah, and test. So what we want to do is we want to pull uh, groups of users, for instance, to show these are the users that have access to certain systems. That's a piece of proof. We want to pull um, what would be access approval. So eventually all of your systems will go through an access approval process where you say, all your users have been reviewed by the manager or the account manager for a given system and that that access is appropriate or not appropriate or there's changes there's a sign off on that process but we'll we'll collect that as proof as well so yeah but screenshots configuration items all of these are are in the purview of the proof right and you can collect all these things uh, with hyperproof and, and include them in your control set which is really nice okay and now from my perspective having audited access control policies before, I'd say one of the most common mistakes I've seen is where the tooling doesn't really meet the reality, um, where, you know, user accounts are supposed to be brand new created, and they're not supposed to be cloned, and yet you actually go through the policy, you know, what it says, and what people are actually doing is just copy-pasting accounts. Um, what are some of the more common mistakes that you've seen in this space, and how are we, more importantly, working around those so that companies considering doing FedRAMP would go, oh... The auditors are going to be looking for that one. Yeah, that's those are great questions. So I would say you identified one of them, which is the account creation doesn't follow a best practice uh, path. I would say the second is you have, um, you know, different shared accounts, different service accounts, different common group credentials that are in play and not documented appropriately. Those will catch you every time, you know. Best practice, it should be no secret to anybody in information security or compliance is you shouldn't have shared accounts and you should have a process in place where you have service accounts where those passwords get changed, 
given the departure of key resources. All of that is denoted in this control family as well. So you'll, you'll have fun dealing with all of those pieces and documenting them, which is a healthy thing to go through. But you know, those are probably the most common. There are also other things like session control, which lots of applications are built around the convenience of the user base, not the convenience oh, yeah. of, or not the requirement of compliance. So those things will trip you up if you don't uh, pay attention to them. So you have to go through those. Um, you know, I would say the idea of a user moving through promotion or otherwise through a company and the, the different rights that they maintain as they move is always problematic. So if you don't have a process that takes a look at modifications to users as they progress through an organization, that's problematic and auditors will catch that. They have a keen sense of when that's happening, it seems to me. It's almost like a sixth sense. So oh, definitely. Are... Yeah, that, that's a common enough one that, I, well, I think if you're building, I think you said at the top of this, if you're building from Greenfield, you're less likely to have those problems, though, presupposing that the control operators are actually following the policies and procedures are written. Um, the one that I'd add that you've not yet hit on is the when you get to an interview, and I, I do know FedRAMP includes an interview beyond like just review of artifacts. Um, I think having the control operators be able to say what they're doing actually maps to the policy and the procedure, um, but that's a generic, like that's applicable to access control as well as to other control families. Yeah. That's accurate. I would say the other thing is, I think you hit on it just briefly, but you know, behind every policy, there is procedure. And it is generally reviewed and updated much more frequently than the policy. So what happens is you get a gulf of differences that arise between procedure and policy. Procedure generally gets written by the doers in the organization, and they will edit it to... They'll edit it from the mindset of, well, this is a way easier way to get this done. They won't edit it from the mindset of we have to maintain a certain level of compliance unless they're educated and trained on that. So part of the whole benefit of, of a program like FedRAMP is you get to educate your entire operational group as you go through it. Certainly they are going to be burdened with a bunch of the, the change that is required. And by being burdened with that change, they're going to learn a lot about the why. And that's important to keep in mind as a compliance manager, the why you're doing something and you communicate that. So there's the FedRAMP reason why, but there's also the best practice reason why, the InfoSec reason why you're doing these things. And it's a mistake to go through this process with only a compliance mindset. You should always go through it with, hey, we get further if we shoot for the best practice model and we bring compliance along with us at the same time. That's I think in this case that. as well, FedRAMP is really a business enabler. It's not um, just compliance for compliance sake. We're not doing checkbox compliance. Really, this does enable companies to go after new markets uh, and also to show a higher degree of cybersecurity or information security maturity than a lot of organizations can maintain. Absolutely. Yep. It maintains a big word in FedRAMP because you do maintain it. It's It certainly is not a one and done mentality when you have FedRAMP being in implemented. So. And eventually we will talk about the uh, lab at rinse repeat cycle. But I think before then we're talking about beer ratings. Um, yeah. I have left this, at least the foam has gone down, which is good. Um, I've been taking pretty consistent polls on it. I think this is really good. So you want me to do an, a rating first? Should I rate this one first, Kane? Uh, yeah, I think I usually rate it first. So go ahead, Tom. We're going to mix it up a little today. I'm going to say okay. I'm so surprised by this beer. I really anticipated this being a much hoppier beer than it is in terms of balance anyway. 
So I'm going to give this a eight. I really like this beer. I would drink this if it were in my local market. Okay. All right. But it's not because this is from Utah. Um, Correct. Which is, as I, we pointed out, not a West Coast beer. Um, I would give this a, it's not as terrible as the sour. It's not <laughs> as terrible as the Anchor Pale Ale. Um, so I'm going to give this a three. Mm. Um, on the basis of it's not as bad as those other two. Yeah, <laughs> well, you gotta have and a basis. I don't know. I kind of like the I kind of like the color. At least yeah. the color color's is nice. Pretty. It's got it's got a warm orangey honey color. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 great. So great. So what are we talking about next time, Kane? Um, I think we're gonna get into a more spicy conversation, mm. one that's near and dear to my heart around incident response policies. So mm. I'm looking forward to that conversation. And uh, as always, we'll have these up on YouTube as well as on the community in, I think about about two weeks. And if you're listening on podcasts, thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Drafting Compliance. See you next time. Thank you. Bye.